Welcome to the Authors Who Lead podcast. This podcast is dedicated to you, people who want to be inspired by authors, leaders, and the messages they share. This is such an important podcast to us because we help uncover what goes on behind the scenes when authors are writing their book. We talk about the process. We talk about where they get big ideas, and you can listen in on those conversations. We can't wait for you to join us. So let's get started. Hey, everybody. Asul Tarone is here, your guest for Authors Who Lead. Today's guest is Dr. Benjamin Hardy. He's an organizational psychologist and a best-selling author of Willpower, Doesn't Work. And from 2015 to 2018, he was the number one in the whole world writer on Medium.com. Now, during this time, he grew his email list from zero to 400,000 without paid advertising, which is amazing, right? Think about it. 400,000. He could fill so many auditoriums with just that number. Ben and his wife, Lauren, adopted three children from the foster system in February 2018. One month later, got pregnant with twins who were born in December of 2018. And they live in Orlando. And Ben's blogs are read by millions monthly. Super excited today to talk about his book, Personality Isn't Permanent. It totally debunks the whole idea of myths of these personality tests. And we're going to talk about that, talk about why why they happen, and what you can do to reprogram your brain to think if you have a permanent fixed mindset around personality, you're going to be surprised about what happens here. Dr. Hardy, welcome to the show. I'm grateful to be with you. This is, this is fun. I love chatting with you, and uh, I love the audience as well, as far as writers and creatives, and so just happy to be with you. Thank you so much. Now, so what's great about this is that we get to kind of dive into the, the, the conversation of writing as well as the content. So we're going to kind of shape our conversation around this old notion of becoming a writer, because it is a persona, right? It's something you have to decide to own. So when I was reading both this, both your book about willpower, as well as personality isn't permanent, I really could hear the way in which you wrestle with words. Now, but it wasn't always the case. School always wasn't your thing. And that's when I appreciated about even this book, you shared quite a bit about how your early life wasn't what you would think of somebody as being the number one author of a, of a platform like Medium to be. So what was writing your relationship to writing early on in childhood up until early adulthood? Didn't do it. Didn't see myself as a writer. Didn't see myself as capable of writing. Just didn't, you know, I remember as a, like a second grader drawing, like doing little, we, we would like write and illustrate short books. And I remember doing that and enjoying it, but not seeing myself as a writer, honestly, more just liking drawing pictures and shaping stories. But I actually still, to this day, don't view myself as the best storyteller. That's something I'm still working on. I think I I got better at storytelling with personality from willpower. But yeah, I remember taking an English class in high school and don't remember anything about it. Don't never saw myself as a writer. It was really when I was serving a church mission from age 20 to 22 that I started journaling a lot. And I didn't think that that would lead me to writing. But I, I, I journaled enormously. A lot of it was just recounting my experiences, sharing my thoughts, and in a lot of ways, reframing my trauma and my emotions and just kind of just using it as a tool for self understanding and also self creation, writing about who I wanted to be. And it was during many a journaling session and also reading lots of books. I think reading and journaling were what what began me on this path. I read a lot of really great books that opened me up. And I became fascinated by the authors and the thinkers and just who they had to be to write those books. I wasn't necessarily looking at them as a writer, as more of a teacher or as a person. And I'm like, wow, what is it about that person that allows them to share these kind of thoughts Hmm. or these ideas that are so helpful? So that reading so many books during that two-year experience, self-improvement, religion, psychology, philosophy, whatever it may be, just looking at the person who did it 
was really interesting to me. And then writing lots and lots in my journal and getting to the point where I was learning just as much while writing, specifically while journaling, as I was while I was reading. Because mm-hmm. when I was writing, I was kind of synthesizing my thoughts. I was just, and I wasn't doing it like incredibly systematically. I was just writing about my thoughts and my ideas, and it would really reinforce my memory and kind of change my memory. And, you know, writing in stream of consciousness, I just, I just learned to write through the journal. And so that was kind of where I learned how to do it. And that's, that's kind of still the primary education I've ever had in writing is journaling. Right. You know, there's something to be said for having some sort of metacognition around something you're learning or showing up for every day. That's the thing that we talked about sort of pre-show that I really noticed that kids that never really had a chance to use their writing as a tool, they use it as a performance outcome. So they never saw writing as a creative process. Even if you did have a chance to take creative writing, it was usually because you were a better writer. It wasn't for the write, the kids that weren't good at it. And the problem with that is that the most, the rest of us, we spend our time doing writing. Well, actually, we're not taught more about writing. We're taught about editing, right? So we're taught, this is what you need to do to get a paper good enough to turn into the teacher and get an A or get a B, whatever you kind of student you want it to be. So you edit it against that. Like, okay, this is the assignment. This is the requirements. I'm going to write safely to that edge so I get that grade. It wasn't like, so I wonder what I think about the world. What do I care about? What do I really believe in? And so writers who do that work kind of dive into an, an area of curiosity, start to grow. And what I noticed about schools is, you know, be, and I take responsibility for this because I was in education for so long, that it wasn't until I decided that I'm no longer going to make kids write things that they don't care about or that they wouldn't choose on their own. Then I saw their writing shift. When I saw their behaviors in writing shift, when their belief about why they were writing shifted, it wasn't me teaching more grammar or more of the rules. It was teaching more of about, what do you believe this? Show me how I know that this is true in your world. So I think that's the problem. You know, we, we don't see writing as a tool that you've seemed to have discovered on your own in that missionary work and journaling. So that's great. Yeah. I mean, just, just a quick thought on that is thinking at you, you're triggered a thought, you know. So one of the things that I read from Ryan Holiday when I first started blogging, or I'd heard it somewhere, is he said, and he was specifically talking about headlines to articles, but he said, you want to write something that essentially dares someone to click. It's so interesting or compelling or, you know, and obviously you can go into clickbait and whatnot, but like, I liked that idea of daring someone to click. And I also liked the idea of like, write something that is semi scary to publish because you're revealing something either about yourself or what you see or believe in the world. And just thinking about like a school assignment of write something that would terrify you to share with others, Mm -hmm. because it's, it's something either about yourself or how you view the world. And from a viral or a blogging perspective, you know, writing something that's terrifying to publish because, you know, because it's so honest or compelling or just potentially polarizing, but also then framing it strategically from a marketing perspective of daring someone to come and, and see right. <laughs> as far as the headline. So it's, it's a different look at, at writing. It's a lot more open and honest, but at the same time, more strategic. And you get to the point, I guess, where you're just fine riding the waves of the, the emotions. Right. So that that brings me to another point. So these books, both your book on willpower as well as personality isn't permanent, they have a real strong core, but they also kind of match that idea of headlines because you're so many of us who've taken some sort of personality test in schools or in a job and we're told, Oh, you're an owl or you're a you're a D or you're a six or all these labels that are identified to these personality tests. What really got you thinking about this as an idea for a book? For you, where did the book ideas begin? 
Is there a list of them you just can't wait to write or they just one just keeps you up at night? Oh, gosh, well, you know, with with willpower, the idea wasn't actually about willpower. Originally, it was about environment. And I mean, I mean this, the book still became about that. I had studied my, you know, through my PhD about willpower. And really, as a psychologist, you you begin to really realize the power of context. I think psychologists, after you really study psychology for so long, you start to see the world in form of context. And so and I just saw that most of the self-improvement advice completely ignored that because we're so individualistic. We view ourselves, it's called atomistically, you know, so we, we like to isolate ourselves and view ourselves as independent structures that are totally self-existing, which is not true from a psychology perspective. And so that was kind of, and plus I'd been in environments, you know, you and I were talking about masterminds and I'd been in, I'd first off been a part of a terrible environment growing up. And then we had gotten foster kids and watched as the foster kids who came from a really bad background came into our environment, which was from our perspective, a lot better. And they had a lot more freedom and ability in the new environment. And so, and also I had been involved in mastermind groups and in different environments that I felt like changed me. And so the book actually that I sold, I sold the book to the publisher as the proximity effect. That was actually what it was called, the proximity effect. And I was working with Ryan Holiday on that book. And we both agreed that that wasn't the right title. And I just couldn't, and the, the main idea is just that you can't really accomplish what you're trying to in, a, in the wrong environment. And so that's kind of more the, the willpower approach is fighting against the situation and putting all the pressure on yourself rather than just changing the context and putting yourself in a situation that pulls you forward. Right. So that was, it took a long time to come around. But the main crux of that book was just that it's not willpower, it's environment. And it took a while to finally come around to the title, which was willpower doesn't work, which was, I knew it needed to be an aggressive title. Mm-hmm. and so. It took a while to get there. I had written a blog post called Willpower Doesn't Work, Here's How to Change Your Life while I was writing the book and I had never come up with the title, but someone loved the, the article and they're like, well, why don't you just call the book Willpower Doesn't Work? And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Um, in the writing of willpower, I came across some science or some, you know, there's a concept called self-signaling, which I mention. I think I mention it in both books, mm-hmm. but it's way more relevant to personality. But in willpower, I make the statement you know, your choice, your, your, your personality doesn't shape your decisions, your decisions shape your personality. That's just a statement that I'd written and I'd thought a little bit about. And I liked the idea of self-signaling, which is basically the idea that your behavior signals back to you who you are. It, your, your, your behavior shapes your identity. And, your, you know, and, and we can talk about but identity and personality are two different things. But right. those were kind of ideas that I thought were interesting and important, but I just was focused on willpower. And I can't really remember, I can't remember exactly what led me to writing willpower doesn't work, except for those were some of the thoughts. I knew I, I wasn't totally clear on all of the bogusness of the personality tests. I had been taught all through my PhD program that personality tests like Myers and Briggs are total garbage as far as science. And I've never resonated with them. Personally, I've never taken them seriously. Mm-hmm. And I knew that they were a cultural fad, but it was that was not what I was thinking about when I was first selling the book. I had heard a quote that I believe is from Einstein, and it might be, it might be apocryphal. But the quote is basically, the measure of intelligence is the ability to change. So that was a quote that was going through my mind. There was another quote from Elaine Day Button. And he said, if you're not embarrassed by who you were 12 months ago, you didn't learn very much. And I had spent a lot of time studying learning. And my belief is that learning means change. If you've truly learned something, you did change. And so I just was looking around and thinking, personality is such a hot topic. And people have such incorrect views about personality. And that's kind of far more fundamental than willpower. And so I just thought, 
I just want to debunk this concept because for me, I'm interested in teaching people how to change because that's that's where that's my lens. And so I just thought this was a good avenue to do it. No, it's really great. And I think that's where I felt like the willpower book was so powerful and that your story was trying to help yourself through this idea of becoming a, an instant father of a whole family like overnight and we're trying to figure out this whole idea of fitting into your environment. So I felt that resonance in willpower. And then the personality isn't permanent. I also feel this this curiosity of helping people understand, you know, as you mentioned, even Carol Dweck, that your mindset is malleable, that you're able to understand who you are through your decisions about who you want to be. And in your book, you talk a lot about things that really struck me, which was, you know, how the perception of people coming coming to this identity of, for example, Myers-Briggs. And you, you mentioned the idea this was, wasn't created by scientists. This wasn't a, a test, a normative test. And even ones that are normative, let's say an IQ test, you know, all these things that a label a child, label an adult, label this is who I am, does several things. What's one of the, the, the number one things you think do when people make the assumption that these are true? Yeah, I think label is so interesting. So labels create tunnel vision. They, you know, and this could be for good or bad. But essentially, when you assume a label and you, you identify with it, and when you identify with, with something, you view the world through your identity. So there's, a, I think a lot of people have heard the quote, we see the world not as it is, but as we are. Mm-hmm. And so we all view the world through the perspective of our identity, through how we see ourselves. And then what psychologists, there's a concept in psychology called selective attention. And selective attention is essentially the idea that you see what's meaningful to you. And obviously, your identity is incredibly meaningful to you. So when you buy a car, you start to see that car everywhere. Our brains can't consciously, you know, select everything coming in. So we identify the things that are meaningful to us. And so we see the world through a very selective lens. And from my perspective, you could and should be strategic about how you train your brain what to look for. There's actually a quote from Dan Sullivan. He says, our eyes can only see and our ears can only hear what our brains are looking for. That's selective attention. And so you can use labels for good and bad. But from my perspective, the negative component of labels for most people is is that it shapes your, first off, it shapes your identity. You've got now this label that you're identifying with, which may or may not be true, but now you're assuming it's true. And now it's shaping your worldview and how you see yourself. It changes how you see your past because your memories are also fluid. We don't see the past as it is. We see the past as we are. We see the past from the perspective of the present. And so how you view your past right now is more of a reflection of your current view and your current identity than the, than the actual past. And so your label shapes your identity. It shapes your past. It shapes how you see the environment. And there's a there's a Harvard psychologist. Her name is Ellen Langer. She's very interesting. She's written two books, which I think are very helpful for people to read. One's called Mindfulness. The other one's called Counterclockwise. But one of the quotes that I use from her in the book is that when someone identifies as something, they may see themselves as depressed. They become mindless. They stop seeing all of the times when the label is not true. Mm. So, you know, and, and it is not true a lot of times and in a lot of contexts and a lot of situations. There's a lot of times when someone who, you know, is or feels depressed feels fine and they feel good. But the problem with selective attention is, is that you ignore those or you downplay them and they don't come to mind. And so you you assume that the label is always true when it's not. And so, yeah, I think labels are interesting. One of the one of the concepts that I present in the book is that labels aren't necessarily bad, but they should serve your goals. And I actually tell the story of Jeff Goins, you know, so Jeff Goins is someone who I looked to when I first started blogging because I thought his blog was interesting and he helped me to learn some strategies around writing. 
but he often told the story that he always wanted to be a blogger or a writer. He didn't necessarily want to be a blogger, but he wanted to be a writer, but he never got around to it until he gave himself the label or the identity as a writer. He said he had a friend say, well, Jeff, you're a writer, so just start calling yourself a writer. And so he just owned the identity. He started, he got a website called Goins Writer, and he just started telling people he was a writer. And so he was very conscious and strategic about that label and about that identity. And that's, that's a big concept in the book is to create an identity based on where you're going, not based on where you've been. But just as a last thought is that your identity or your label should be based on your goals. But the problem with most people is that their goals are based on their, are, the, on, are based on their labels. <laughs> so right. rather than choosing a label to achieve a goal, most people select goals to support a label that they've already identified with, which to me is incredibly limiting. Right. It's completely, it's completely limiting. And I think maybe this is why, as we talked earlier uh, off air, that how I was always, I was always a rule breaker, but always really quiet about it. One of the books that I'm, I'm working on is called Creative Noncompliance, How to Bend the, Break the Rules for the Better Good. Because I think it's the only thing that changes things is being creatively noncompliant. So, so one of the things that I think about when you say these things is, like, I'm really grateful that, you know, because I'm, uh, you know, half a century, most people didn't have identification or a word to identify dyslexia when I was a kid. They just, like, this kid can't read. And so they put you on the Bluebird group where you have to come in from recess early and practice reading or whatever. You know, and I would just memorize the books during regular time and then so I could go back to recess and I could just pretend like I was reading. But but what would happen is that, you know, because I didn't have a label, I just didn't know until I was almost a senior in college, that there was a thing called dyslexia. So I just worked really, really hard when I thought, gosh, this is really hard. Reading's hard. Doing this work is hard. I didn't realize because my brain didn't process the same. But I'm really glad it didn't because it would have changed the way, you know, me being the first person in my family to go to college, me getting into a master's degree at UCLA. If I knew I had something that was labeled, I might have just kind of given up. But really, now that I have it, I, I tell people like, and this is the reason why I can speed read, Dyslexia has allowed me to speed read because I don't process words like people. I don't process single words. It just doesn't work that way for me. So I think the labels can be very detrimental or they can work to your advantage. It really, it really depends on, like you said, your goal. One of the quotes from your book that really struck me was when you said, trauma is the meaning you give an event or experience and how that meaning shapes your view of yourself, your future, and the world at large. In what way can you help us understand how trauma plays into this whole world of personality? Because it didn't seem like a natural fit when I first saw it. I was like, oh, I'm interested here. This is not where I thought this was going. Tell me a little bit about, about what that quote means and how we can understand trauma as it relates to your personality as impermanent. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I would say that, you know, outside of environment, and maybe just as much, and when I'm talking environment, I'm talking culture, social group, etc. Trauma is one of the most fundamental aspects of personality. I learned this I came to the, I became really open to this idea when I read the book, The Body Keeps the Score, which is probably the most definitive book on trauma at the time. It's a, it's such a big, thick, amazing book. I've read it a few times. But what was interesting when I read that book, and it, it really helped put a few pieces together for me, is that he talks about how trauma, and he talks about extreme traumatic experiences. But I guess one thing just on the onset is, is that trauma can be anything big or small. Trauma is just an experience that you absorb and internalize. So if you're told by someone that you're not good at math, just as an example, and you actually like have an emotional experience and you tend to believe it, that's trauma. Because you know, the idea of trauma is, is that you have a negative experience that you then identify with and it stops you from 
moving forward in the future. Trauma, from my perspective, is actually what creates the fixed mindset. So a fixed mindset is the belief that you, you're permanent or you can't change. And so if you have a bad experience that you then don't recover from, then it's a trauma. And, mm-hmm. it, and what, what the author of The Body Keeps Score, I believe, is Bess, Bessel van der Kolk. He talked about a few things that kind of blew my mind that really started to open me up when I was writing this book. First off, he says that trauma leads to a frozen personality. That was, it was actually while listening and reading that book that I was like, okay, this is the book, Personality Isn't Permanent. Because he talks about how trauma leads to a frozen personality. And it stops your personality and its development because when you're traumatized, you become fully absorbed in the past. And the trauma becomes this ever-present thorn that you're carrying with you and it influences everything you do. And so like whether it would, you know, and I had a lot of trauma, I think everyone has trauma. It could be big or small. Even failing can be a trauma if you don't keep going. So if you write a blog post, for example, and someone tells you it's not good, and then that leads you to not writing the next post, then that's a trauma. And if, if you never write another article again, then, the tra- then it is trauma. It's only not trauma when you keep writing and then you learn from it and then you look back and say, oh, like I grew from that. But so trauma freezes you in your development and it keeps you stuck in the experience of the past. So from a memory perspective, if something bad happened to you 20 years ago and you still view the past the same way, then it means that you haven't resolved that trauma. You're still kind of stuck in your initial experience. And so you're still viewing the experience maybe as a 10-year-old. You're still viewing it from the emotional impact of when it first hit you rather than viewing it from the perspective of a 30-year-old or a 40-year-old mature adult saying, okay, like I can see that... I didn't deserve that or that, you know, that that was nonsense. Or that did, You're not viewing it from the perspective of a more mature perspective. You're, you're still viewing it from the initial experience, which was painful. That's, it hurt. Like if you have a painful reaction to something, there's an initial re- reaction and then, there, and then there's a follow-up perspective that you can develop over time. And the problem with trauma is that it's still the view of your initial painful reaction. So that's why your personality gets frozen rather than continues to develop, change, evolve, because you stop learning. Trauma stops you from learning. You get so absorbed in the pain of something, and then you avoid it entirely. And so you stop learning from it and stop developing. You just avoid it. The other thing that Bessel said that was really interesting that really kind of opened me up is he, he was talking about people who had gone to war or something and who had PTSD. And he was talking about how one of the really intriguing aspects of trauma, especially extreme trauma, but I would say any form of trauma, is that it it eliminates your imagination. So he was doing all sorts of tests on people who had experienced extreme trauma. Like there's there's like psychological tests called like Rorschach tests. And basically what you do with these tests is you look at weird images and you just say what you think the image is. It, like it literally could be anything. But he found that with people who had been through big trauma, they couldn't imagine anything from the picture. They couldn't see any different shapes or sizes. They couldn't imaginatively think of things. And so what, what he found is, is that trauma just totally damages your mental flexibility, hmm. your ability to flexibly think. And if you think about what trauma is, it's, it's emotional rigidity. It's, you get stuck seeing things one way. You can't flexibly move forward. You can't, you just, you're rigid and stuck rather than seeing things from different angles and, and being willing to move forward through the emotions. You avoid the emotions and you just, you start to see things black and white. And so why that's so important is because kind of going to the idea of Albert Einstein, he said imagination is more important than knowledge. You know, mental and emotional flexibility is key to learning. It's also key to 
reshaping your perspective of former experiences and it's key to imagining future experiences or even a future self and a future identity if your imagination is limited then then you're you're going to be kind of stuck being the person you've been in the past right and I'm glad you shared it they did such a great job of really bringing home what the purpose of trauma is in this book because when I first saw it, I'm like I'm interested I'm not sure what to believe here until I waded through I'm like oh, all of this makes so much more sense it's an internal story that and I love the way you described it from, you know, the body keeps the score, that it's sort of in your body. It keeps this permanent record keep inside of you that freezes freezes you or f- freezes your personality as you talk about it and keeps you from doing it. And I often find this because I make my authors uh, draw their book first before they're allowed to write words. For some people, words are safety because words feel like heavy weight and meaning. And I always ask people, regardless of how well they're able to write and how many books they've written to show me what this book looks like to you. Here's colors, here's markers, crayons. Show me this book. Show me what it looks like. You have one page, you have 45 minutes to show me. And what's interesting is sweet exercise. <laughs> what I make them do is I say, this book lives in you. The words are probably the words on a page are probably not the best way to communicate this. There's this is a lifetime of thinking and growing inside of you. But like show me what would it be if we didn't have to worry about how many words it was or and what I find is fascinating because sometimes people who have some of the strongest abilities to write struggle with this exercise. And I say, this is what, if we don't work on this, what happens is you write what you know because you get safe. You start writing all the things you already have done and lived because you're at a place here where you have to flex the creativity muscle. And when I coach companies that are having problems with creativity, I say, you don't have a creativity problem or an innovation problem. You giving Google time to your employees or Netflix time, you know, 20% time isn't going to fix your creativity problem. You have a curiosity problem. And if there's no evidence of curiosity here and that you're, you're not going to ever find something new worth talking about on the edge of where you're probably uncomfortable and yet need to write about. So I always like to see what's going on. And this exercise of drawing helps me spark whether or not they're in a place of being able to write something new or they're always going to reach back to some safety zone to write what they know. I think that's amazing. I mean, I've never heard of that exercise before, but just thinking about how I view, you know, both willpower and personality, if I were to draw those as pictures, they would be such different pictures. Right. They start to articulate themselves in ways you can't with words. Because I think it was Tony Buzan, the the psych, psychologist who developed what the idea of mind map. Mind map, yeah. Yeah. So I took that idea, we've used it in education for years. People have bastardized it and called it you know, making a web, but it's it, it's really meant to be mimicking the way the brain operates with colors and visuals and crooked lines, more like branches and bronch, bronchoi type things in your lungs or something in nature. And to me, that's how books should be created because they live in this weird infant stage where they're not quite formed. So leave them there. And what I found when I did this with kids, kids that I worked with kids on this really strong spectrum of autism to where they were one-on-one aides, couldn't be, they were told they couldn't write or speak. End up my class, I'm like, show me the story. And they were able to draw the story. I was like, this is beautiful. If I said, write the story, they would struggle. If I made them draw the story first and then write it, it was as if it were two different people doing it. It was just the way in which their brain was processing. And I think it's true for a lot of people that sometimes the words get in the way, which is kind of ironic because I'm a writing coach. Let's talk a little <laughs> bit about, um, about how... This book kind of dealt with the subconscious. That's another thing that really kind of inspired me was how personality and the subconscious are so deeply connected. Of course, you already touched on trauma, but talk a little bit more about the subconscious role in the personality and how it shapes you. 
Yeah. I mean, subconscious is such a a topic that's, you know, people have heard it for decades, you know, and it's it's an idea we all kind of have some concept of, you know, it's it's but it's ethereal. It's kind of a hard thing to understand, but the essence of it, you know, from a mainstream perspective is that you're, you know, and this has been said is that 95 at least 95% of what we do is done subconsciously. So for example, you and I are breathing right now. Like that's something that you and I are not consciously thinking about. There's so many other things that we're doing. I mean, driving is the ultimate example. When you're driving, you can totally tune out and, you know, your body just kicks on and does it on autopilot. And there's so many things that we're doing on autopilot, whether it's tying our shoe without thinking about it, you know, me standing here and talking. But the subconscious is really, really crucial to your personality. Your personality is basically where you're at at the subconscious level. It's where you're at as a person. And if you can change yourself at the subconscious level, you're definitely going to change your personality. One of the quotes that really hit me, it was from Dr. David Hawkins. And I'd read this in his book, Letting Go, probably four or five years ago. But it was, I've read similar versions of this quote in many different places. But the quote is that your unconscious will only allow you to have what you believe you deserve. And so the idea is, is if you don't believe you deserve success, then obviously you're going to do anything and everything you can to sabotage that. Another book that I'd read recently that I thought was really cool was called The Big Leap from Dr. Gay Hendricks. And he talks about a concept that's quite similar. He calls it the upper limit problem. Right. And the idea is that if you're seeking improvement in any area of your life, subconsciously, you're going to try to sabotage yourself to get back to your homeostasis because your subconscious is a homeostasis. It's wherever you feel comfortable. And that comfort level is obviously mental and emotional. And so we do whatever we can to feel the same emotions over and over. Like if you don't believe you can feel good <laughs> all the time, then you're going to do everything you can to create chaos in your life, even if you want to feel good. Right. And so, you know, that's just big in personality. So for me, I'm always interested in what are ways that I can upgrade my subconscious? What are either behaviors or actions or information that I can get that would would alter things at the at the fundamental or the lower level and kind of upgrade what I believe I deserve. Because you could have all the goals you you could think of, but if you deep down don't think you can have them, then you're going to do everything you can to sabotage yourself to getting them. Right. And so in the book, I talk about what, what I call subconscious enhancing behaviors or subconscious enhancing experiences. One of the examples... I use actually is Charlie Trotter. Charlie Trotter was the famous chef and he owned at the time, I think what was one of the top restaurants in the world, but he would bring in impoverished kids who had no money, bring them from the ghetto of Chicago into the restaurant, into a completely fine dining experience and just give them the best experience. And, you know, a lot of the critics or a lot of people said that that was really wrong of him because he was providing them an unrealistic expectation. But what he was presenting to them was exposure to a totally different way of living that, than they had ever been exposed to. And that to me was a subconscious enhancing experience. So subconscious enhancing behavior from my perspective is an action that reflects who you want to be more than who you've been. So it's really easy to act the same way you did yesterday. It's easy to go through the motions. That would be the subconscious thing to do. But if you do something that's pretty aggressive, I call them power moves or subconscious enhancing behaviors. But if you do something that's aggressive towards a goal, to me, that that can kind of trigger you to start to believe that you could have this. It often takes courage, takes commitment, but it, it goes back to that idea of self-signaling, that you really start to believe yourself based on your actions. And so if you start doing something 
that looks more like your future self. Just as an example, like if you've been kind of in a rut in like your relationship with your spouse and you just, just to be honest, you've been lazy in the relationship. If you were to do something pretty aggressive in that relationship that would, would not reflect who you've recently been, you bring your wife home flowers and like a love note and you just do something absolutely different. To me, that would be a subconscious enhancing behavior. Obviously, you'd need to keep doing it because it would be easy the next day to just go back to homeostasis. But I'm always looking for experiences that just reshape my sense of normal, like that this is normal life for me now. Like who I was a year ago is different from who I am now. And what I view as normal is different from what I viewed a year ago. And so trying to expose myself to new, higher, different ways, that's, I mean, I think masterminds are one way that I've reshaped what I think is normal and what I expect in the world. Right. In the book, I talk about charitable giving. You know, that one is one that has shaped me in a different way. <laughs> like giving money away to people is such a fast way to change your sense around money. Right. No, that's a great point. And I, I think that's what made this book so accessible for me as I was, I always try to be open-minded and curious when I wade into a book and not have too many prejudgments uh, if I can. But one of the things I was trying to, to not decide early was, do I believe this idea of personality isn't permanent or not? And I didn't want to judge it. I didn't want to make an assumption, though the title is already testing the assumption, right? Uh, what was really great is when you start talking about how these behaviors, these actions of being who you kind of willfully want to be by behaving this way. It made me think about some students I had. So when I was in uh, inner city LA and that's where I first started teaching, we would take these students, a retired teacher would take students on, on the ocean and sail. And we would take kids who were only lived eight miles from the, the water who had never seen the beach to live aboard and be crew members of this revolutionary replica ship. In fact, once we sailed on James Cagney's boat, but what we did is we changed their environment. These are gang member kids, came from <laughs> gang families. You know, the majority of them, if they graduated eighth grade, would be a huge feat. And before they even left eighth grade, more than 60% of them wouldn't graduate high school. Just by statistics alone in their neighborhood, there's no way that they were going to do it. So we wanted to switch their mindset. So we took them sailing for a week to live aboard and become sailors. The captain actually didn't have any care about that we were teachers or they were students, because on his ship, you were sailors, and you did what he said, and the rules changed. So by changing the rules, we watched these kids who were unruly, you know, kind of misbehaving, suddenly become these incredible sailors, navigating the ship, you know, plotting the course with a sexton, using a compass to make the, the grid for how, we're, how long we're going there, using old methods to dropping like line in water to measure the fathoms and how deep, the, how fast they were going, just incredible things cooking the meals for the captain, and giving complete freedom. There's no rules here. You're crew members. The only rules that counts are the rules I set as the captain. Other than that, you're equal. And it was amazing because their minds shifted, and they longer were contrived to this rules of, you know, we're, we're in this gang, this is how we behave, which is what they did to survive at school. But on the ship, the rules shifted, and their perception shifted, and they, they were given complete autonomy to how they behaved, and they chose different paths. And it was amazing. And some of those students, you know, because... Those students are probably like 35 or 36 now. Well, I took them one or 12. Their whole life changed. Because I just sh shifted that what I believe was what was out there in the world, even though it was only a short experience. So I think there's so much to this behavioral aspect of your life and shifting in the way that you think. What was the biggest aha that you happened for you personally as you're writing a book that has to do with personality? Yeah. Thank you. That's such a good question. There was a few things that came to me and still come to me. 
like just the idea popped in my head today that labels create tunnel vision. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but you know, it comes to the idea of what you focus on expands and going to selective attention. And I think what I notice for most people is that the focus is on what what is consistent, you know. So there's a quote in the beginning of the book, and it's honestly a like a JK Rowling quote from Albus Dumbledore, but he says, it is our choices that matter more than our abilities. And I think that generally people focus on one or the other. They'll focus on ability, which could be viewed as innate, or they'll focus on choice. And I'm always going to be on the choice side. I'm obviously recognized that we all have different abilities, but I've watched myself evolve by making choices and being conscious and being intentional. I've, you know, if anyone who's listening to this might think that I'm an intellectual and an intelligent guy, but honestly, that's not who or how I was. I mean, I barely got through school. I barely, I mean, I don't, I think that intelligence is trained. And I think that Carol Dweck would agree. I think that, you know, maybe some of those tests would disagree, but I, I think intelligence is flexible. It's fluid. And so I think the thing that, aside from all of the ideas of, you know, flexibility, you know, flexibility versus rigidity, and that your future self should be viewed as someone different from who you are now, and that you shouldn't overvalue your current identity. Those are some of the big things, but I think uh, the biggest one for me that hits in the first story and then re-hits in the conclusion is the idea that your purpose is something that should trump and should transform your personality. And that purpose is not something to be discovered, but something to be chosen. And that it's not something to wait and find. Obviously, you've got past, you've got experiences that you can draw from, but the more confident you become as a person, the more you choose a purpose worth pursuing. And as you choose a purpose worth pursuing, and you commit to that, it's going to transform you. I mean, you should pursue something that transforms you. And it transforms every aspect of your life through the pursuit of it. And that's, that's something. So, I mean, in my opinion, purpose trumps personality. And uh, I've seen that in my own life. I see, I continue to clarify and choose and shape a meaningful purpose in my life. And that leads me to do many things that are not just my core preference. And it changes my preference. You know, when I first became a, a foster parent, I didn't like it. It was my wife's plan, not mine. She wanted to have the foster kids. She had grown up with foster kids in her home. I wasn't necessarily against it. I was pretty flexible, you could say, or open to it, that openness to newness. But I I didn't like it for the first year and a half. It was not comfortable to me. It was not what I wanted. And I had to train and have experiences and learn to genuinely love these kids that are now my kids. And I would say that I do love them a lot now. And it's changed. I'm changed because of it. A final insight, just as it relates to this, Low-level perspectives of psychology, and honestly, I got a lot of this when I listened to Tony Robbins back in the day, and maybe his views have changed since then. My guess is that they have. But he talked a lot about how everything is governed by avoiding pain or pursuing pleasure. And I think that that's the general view of personality for most, is that you avoid things that are uncomfortable and you do things that are easy. You do things that are pleasurable. So if you're an introvert, you're going to avoid pain and you're going to pursue pleasure, which is to be alone. And I think that that's that's a really low-level view of human beings. I think when you have a higher sense of purpose and you are willing to commit to that purpose and you're flexible, then you will make choices irrespective of pain and pleasure in order to do and become what you want. And I've seen that over and over in my life, that I've been able to become and create what I want because of some higher why rather than just how I see myself in the moment. That's great. What a perfect way to round out a very fruitful conversation. Dr. Hardy, 
Personality Isn't Permanent is it's an incredible book. I've really enjoyed reading it. I'll probably reread it again to actually now be a, more of a student. I really appreciate that. Where would people go to learn more about you and the work you're doing specifically around the books you're releasing? Yeah. So if you go to benjaminhardy.com forward slash personality, you can find more about the book, given that this is a writing audience. So, I mean, I've had, you know, relative success with my writing, particularly blogging. And a few years ago, I did a, like a workshop, you could say, at Genius Network, all about my strategies for blogging. And just one of the things I'm giving away for people who pre-order the book is that full day workshop. It's something I've sold for $1,000. It's called Genius Blogging. I don't even know if it's on my website right now, but it's something I've sold many times in the past. And for anyone who pre-orders the book, if they would email, you know, send an email in through my website, we will send them free access to Genius Blogging, which is, I think it's like six hours of deep dive content into writing strategy. Actually, I'm giving away other things, but this is just, you know, relevant to this audience. So yeah, but uh, anyways, even if that's not interesting, you can just go to benjaminhari.com. You can see blogs there learn about the books. And, uh, you know, well, it, what's interesting, one last thought is I've recently re-listened to Willpower Doesn't Work. I actually interviewed Tucker Max for this book. And he's someone who you and I have talked about. And he talks about how when he reads his former writing, it's like reading a different person. Right. I'm not that far away. <laughs> he wrote some of his crazy books like a decade and a half ago. Willpower was about three years ago. And I, I feel like a different person there than I was when I'm reading there's so many things I love about willpower and actually re-listening. It's like, whoa, like I actually can't write the same way I used to. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there's a lot of things I love. And there's a lot of things that like, if someone tells me they're reading willpower doesn't work, I, I'm like, oh, I just wish you could read personality. Like, just because I'm disconnected now from that. So even right. though it may resonate more for other people, it's not who I am anymore. You know, like I've changed. And so my view of that book is different. And so when someone's reading that book, even though they may actually like it better and it may be more useful to them than personality, <laughs> from my perspective, because I'm now a different person, I just want people to read personality. Right. And I think it's great. I I agree with the the sense of writing. And this is the, the mistake that I made with children is I didn't make them write enough to realize that, to have that sort of aha, which is, gosh, that early writing wasn't very good. And that's the perception, right? Wasn't good means I'm not that writer anymore. That's all they're saying. But maybe good writing to someone else, right? Or to the right audience, but right. They just or they're like, Oh, I don't write nonfiction like that anymore. Or I don't write fiction like that. And it was amazing to watch young people produce I think we type ten thousand type pages in a year, which that would be the entire school's volume. But I would just make my kids produce volume because that's how they learned. They learned not from me teaching them, but from observing themselves. So I'm glad that that's still true for you. And I really appreciate it. I think personality isn't permanent. It's a great book as well as willpower doesn't work. I really appreciate you being here, Dr. Hardy. It's been such a pleasure. Really grateful for your time. And we look forward to sharing all this with our audience. And if you have a book inside of you, don't wait. Don't hold back. No one's going to give you permission. You don't need to wait because you were called to this. If you're thinking about writing a book, it's because you should. And I believe that wholeheartedly. The teacher in me knows that you'll grow as a human being if you say, what is it that I think and care about in the world? So we we appreciate you, all of you listeners, and we, we hope that you'll continue to to, to follow these authors who lead. Thank you so much, Doctor. Oh, you're so welcome. This was such a pleasure. Thank you, man. Thank you for listening again to another episode of Authors Who Lead. We appreciate you being here, and we hope you subscribe so you get this delivered to your device every week. And if you haven't left us a review, please do so. It really helps. And if you have a book in your heart, you've been wanting to write a book, please go to authorswholead.com and join us on this journey of becoming a published author. 